And I think more and more younger people are being concerned about the treatment of animals. And I think that uh, the humanitarian approach is also another good reason for dietary change. So we really have three sets of good reasons, um, a health reason, uh, an environmental reason and a humanitarian reason. So I think all those reasons really should be brought together to support one another um, in, in making humans change the, the way that they're, they're feeding. And I think things, it's, it, I'm not, I'm not, I used to feel I was out on a limb a little bit with this, but I now feel that I'm not particularly out on a limb. Um, and I think that uh, what one's seeing in the journals, uh, the Eat Lancet with what will it and... Uh, and the, 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 the big attention that they've drawn to the impact of diet and sustainability. Human Revolution podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marbus, and today I'm so honored to welcome Dr. David Jenkins. How are you today, sir? Very well, thank you. And you? I am very good. Thank you very much for asking. <laughs> well, you are a pioneer in nutritional research, and I'm just so tickled to speak to you today. <laughs> and could you give us just a little bit of background about you and why you chose to go into medicine to begin with? I think that really helps people understand your um, process and your, your life story. Well, my granny um, was the reason I went into medicine. Uh, I put a Band-Aid on a cut on her finger when I was four years old, and she said, you will make a great doctor and you have lots of other people in the family who've been doctors before you for many generations. So you should go and become a doctor. So that was it. <laughs> so, it so it all started uh, when you were four and your granny's uh, a Band-Aid. <laughs> right, that's it. Well, I love it. And it sounds like you've been hel helping people along the way for many years. Trying to put Band-Aids on things. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. I understand. So as far as you have six generations of physicians in your family, is that yes. right? That's what she that's what my granny told me. Wonder I I never question anything she says. <laughs> that's a smart man. See, you were trained early. Very. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. So you you're originally from the UK? Yes. Well, right. originally from from Wales, I guess. But okay. my mother's side also came from Holland. Oh, wonderful. And she married someone who was in Britain, whose family came from Normandy. So I'm not quite sure where I come from exactly. <laughs> well, it sounds like some interesting family history for sure. Right. <laughs> And how did you end up in nutritional research? So you have a PhD and an MD. I mean, can you tell us a little bit about your, your medical history and your um, training? Well, I, I was encouraged to do research. And uh, Bob Good, who was, um, um, he's from Toronto, um, was in the same lab in Oxford as I was. And 
he said, why didn't I look at, um, if I was wanting to lower serum cholesterol uh, and prevent heart disease, why didn't I look at a plant-based diet or a more plant-based diet? Because he'd been looking at that in Toronto with Dr. Alec Little, who was the, the sort of doyen of, of lipid, lipidology in Canada and had been part of the um, uh, lipid research clinics trials that first established that cholesterol was a major factor that when it was reduced, reduced the risk of heart disease. So that was back in the, in the sort of um, 1980s, 19, uh, late 1970s, 1980s. So Bob suggested that I should do this. I, I thought it was a good idea and I did and it worked. Um, during my training, I was attached to, or, or had great admiration for um, Francis Avery Jones, who was again, one of the leaders in gastroenterology worldwide. Um, and um, he was friends with Dennis Burkitt, who was of Burkitt, of, of Burkitt's lymphoma, but also dietary fiber. And so I got to know Dennis Burkitt quite well. And Dennis thought that we should be working on dietary fiber. So he managed to convince Richard Doll and Richard Doll's wife, Richard Doll of, of smoking fame, um, of tobacco and cancer fame. And um, his wife was very high in the British Medical Research Council and the British Medical Research Council decided that they would make a major push um, to investigate dietary fiber. And so when I, I qualified in medicine, um, I went to work as a research scientist with the Medical Research Council looking at dietary fiber. Um, John Cummings, who was uh, uh, my colleague there, worked on more on the colon and I worked more on the, on the small intestine. So obviously that took one from, um, well not obviously, but it did, it took one from an interest in cholesterol lowering to an expanded interest on dietary fiber and blood glucose metabolism and diabetes, because these were also things that were thought to be relevant to dietary fiber intake. And so my life really just continued on that vein. It, it was never anything very dramatic. It just continued to evolve. I met a lot of very clever people and um, benefited from that. And um, that's really as far as the story goes. It really just went into carbohydrate, dietary fiber, and then perhaps later on, um, the glycemic index, and I, which we developed, to be honest, because we saw that there was a lot of um, a lot of negative press for carbohydrate, and the negative press for carbohydrate put as the alternative to carbohydrate meat and animal fat consumption, and we felt that this certainly didn't seem to be right. Um, cholesterol and saturated fat and red meat were not necessarily seen by us to be high on the list of things you'd feed to people at risk of heart disease. Anyway, that was the, 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 the message that was beginning to be developed. And so we felt, let's look at the carbohydrate foods more closely. And we looked at their glycemia and we saw that they were all different and that many of the foods that had a low glycemic index that 
raised to blood glucose, not that much, were very healthy foods like peas, beans, lentils, um, bulgur, couscous, these sorts of things, very often traditionally processed foods like pumpernickel bread. And so we thought, well, these should really be brought back into the diet instead of being pushed out of the diet. And um, that was really the beginning of designing those sorts of diets that had low glycemic indices and looking at what they did. And with that, obviously, the dietary fiber story was also developed because many of these foods were high in fiber and they lowered serum cholesterol. So it looked as if one could do two things at once. One could uh, reduce uh, diabetes problems and also solve the cholesterol problem. So that's why we've spent the time developing those sort of diets over the past 20 years or so. And I think they, they work and they're very similar in many respects to the Mediterranean diet that has had a lot of, um, a lot of good press, um, which is again is a diet high in, in uh, fruit, vegetables, low in meat, um, a lot of vegetable oils, um, not, not animal oils. So, um, and I think the healthy eating index also would give you uh, that particular aspect of, of nutrition. And uh, so would the, um, the Harvard Healthy Eating Index, which is again, another um, more plant-based approach to nutrition. So I think we're beginning to see the plant-based approaches to nutrition taking shape. At the same time, uh, another important um, driver for, for dietary change has come on the horizon, and that's the, the concept of the environment. And people are worried now, I think much more, and rightly so, about the impact of our feeding practices on the environment. And so again, these diets uh, could be encouraged for that reason, that they're environmentally friendly. And I think more and more younger people are being concerned about the treatment of animals. And I think that uh, the humanitarian approach is also another good reason for dietary change. So we really have three sets of good reasons, um, a health reason, um, an environmental reason, and a humanitarian reason. So I think all those reasons really should be brought together to support one another um, in, in making humans change the, the way that they're, they're feeding. And I think things, it's, I'm not, I'm not, I used to feel I was out on a limb a little bit with this, but I now feel that I'm not particularly out on a limb. Um, and I think that uh, what one's seeing in the journals, uh, the Eat Lancet with Walt Willett and, uh, and the, 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 the big attention that they've drawn to the impact of diet and sustainability. I think that these are all important features and, and they've, they've now become much more mainstream. So I think we're still trying to, to find out whether we can increase bile acid losses, whether we can reduce postprandial glycemia, whether we can reduce hemoglobin A1c. We're still looking at the, the sort of markers of these diets that may produce health and trying to see how we can maximize them. And I have no question in my own mind, uh, just as I think Dr. Willis has, that you can have a healthy plant-based diet or an unhealthy plant-based diet. And I think we've got to try and, try and look at these diets critically and see how we can maximize the amount of health that we can extract from these diets. But I would say that I think 
for me, there's been a major shift in the focus of the way one looks at nutrition. And that's really that one should be thinking of not what diet is healthiest for us, but what diet is healthiest for the planet and is also healthiest for us. But I think now the planet must come first, other creatures must come first, and we, with our tremendous ability to eat an enormous range of different foods, must select those foods which are healthy for us, but have a primary fat function on a planetary scale. So that, I think, is a change in thinking for me. I, I think that's a wonderful change. It's a win-win-win for all of us involved. Well, I hope so. It, it may be a little bit of a lose for some of us because, I mean, you know, there are plenty of people in Texas who want to eat a 32-ounce steak. And if you can eat it in, so many, in such a short period of time, you get it free. So, you know, a lot of people are going to be disappointed. But, I mean, we may have to, to give up a little in order to do more. Right. And I, I think that's where it's so important that an industry, they start looking at ways to pivot their business. Like there's a dairy in New York and a dairy in California that are moving towards plant-based milks, which is incredible. This is good. <laughs> yes. And, um, but it was interesting. I, I interviewed Dr. Neil Bernard yesterday and, you know, he mentioned that the dairy consumption has dropped precipitously in the last few years, but now we're seeing a rise. They take that milk and turn it into cheese. So can you describe to us a little bit what happens when we consume highly saturated foods, set fat foods like cheese in, in the human body and what the health effects are? Well, I, you don't get any effects of poison. These have been uh, traditional foods of ours probably for 10, 12,000 years since the agricultural revolution. Um, so these foods, and none of these foods are toxic and eaten in small amounts. Um, I don't think they make a major impact on health that we can detect certainly not detect easily. But I think human beings never do things in a small way. We like to do things big. We like to run a three minute mile. We like to have a car that goes at 200 miles an hour. We like things bigger. And if somebody says, come to brunch for all you can eat, everyone goes. So we don't do things in small ways. So that's why I think that um, we would steer people away from these foods, simply because when you take them in large amounts, they certainly do seem over the long term to not have the benefits that you would have if you took a plant-based diet. Mm. And I think that's the important thing. It's the fact that they're not acutely dangerous that allows people to say, well, why can't we just go on? And I think that's, that's a pity, but that's the way things are. But then again, I think that's when one would bring in the concept of the environment and bring in the concept of humanity in the way that we eat, because those would direct us away from even small amounts of these sorts of foods.
which I may see. not be harmful. We, we may not be harmful. I'm just saying they're not harmful then in very small amounts. Mm. That's what people have got away with eating for a long period of time. Um, whether we can do better on plant-based diets, well, I think depend on the research that we have ongoing and often not very well funded, I have to say. So that is the problem. I don't think we've got the data uh, to show whether you can have two or three cubes of cheese a day or not. That would be a difficult call to make. Um, on the other hand, if there are 10 billion of us and we're all having a few quarters of cheese, how many calves do you have to deprive from their maternal milk? And how much veal do you have to produce to offset the cost? So to make your whole dairy industry cheaper. And I think that's been the great worry. It's great worry in the past with vegetarians um, who quite reasonably uh, thought that they could have eggs and cheese as long as they didn't kill anything. But the trouble is uh, that the eggs and cheese, and certainly the cheese, require that we take calves and make veal out of them. Um, because basically, we've got a lot of calves, if we've got a lot of pregnant cows that are now no longer pregnant, but giving milk. So, and I think that's been a big problem. It's a big problem in parts of the world like India, where you do get a, a, a lacto-vegetarian culture, but on the other hand, they've got a, an excess of, uh, of calves. And so, unfortunately, although I always thought India was a place one should look to uh, for dietary change, uh, it's okay so far, but then what do they do with the calves? So I think, you know, it's not, the, the issues are not simple and they do make changes um, to agriculture over the face of the planet. So I'm not suggesting we've got simple solutions. It's been very difficult for farmers who've been often funded and given their subsidies for producing more meat, producing more milk, producing more dairy products. And we now say these subsidies shouldn't be given to you. But I think if we, if we, if we do that sort of, if we're gonna play that sort of a game, we have to, to help our, our farming community to, to transition um, to production of other foods. And I think that's, I think, one of the things that, one of the many issues that I think we have to deal with when we think, let's go more plant-based. How do we manage to bring everyone with us, not only locally, but internationally? And how do we cope with the different situations and different scenario that we see in different parts of the world? This can all be done. It needs a little thought. We just haven't been thinking of it. That's the trouble. We've not been thinking of it. So we've let things just carry on and not bothered too much, assuming that everything is going to turn out okay. But unfortunately, it isn't. And part of the big reason it's not going to turn out okay is because there are just too many of us. And the damage that you did when you were just a small species is incredibly dangerous when we're a large species. Mm, absolutely. And 
I, I think there's just so many things that we're we're still debating even in society now. People, some people don't believe that you know the global warming trends are going to have a, a an ill effect on us. And if they do, they're like, so what? Well, I have three children. I think it's a very big deal. <laughs> and um, the science, I think, you know, certainly um, looks towards that and we should be doing something. I feel like humans are putting on the gas and accelerating the destruction of our mm -hmm. environment and such. So could you describe for me what you consider the healthiest diet? Like what would you include in your diet on a daily basis? that you would consider you know, optimal for human health? I think that um, many cultures have got these sort of diets right or more friendly to these sorts of diets. So I think the Orient has always been friendly with its tofu and its seitan. So that gives you um, two different, a legume and a cereal protein. And classically, um, they make a very complete protein so uh, those can be eaten in, 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 in meals, I think, with great advantage. I think peas, beans, and lentils um, have to be brought back into the diet. There is a problem with gas for some people. This is true. And, um, but on the other hand, once one eats these things on a more regular basis, the gas is very little. And to be honest, uh, we may just have to put up with a little extra gas between friends. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so, I mean, that may be just one of the things we do. I think that green leafy vegetables are a great source of, of pleasure if they're cooked properly. Um, anything from red chard uh, right the way through to bok choy. These are all enjoyable things that people can eat. In fact, Cicero, the great um, Roman Republican, um, in the sort of Third or second to third century BC introduced the cabbage to Roman culinary art, which is good. So it's been in for a while. And he was a great believer that cabbage was a great restorer of health. Um, so, I mean, for a long time, we've had ideas about what plant foods may be useful. I mean, the, in the Bible, the so-called mess of pottage from the King James Version uh, was apparently a, a, a lentil soup. And if, if you could give up your inheritance for a lentil soup, it was obviously something highly prized. So I think throughout history, um, we've got an indication that these foods are good. And obviously the, the Indian literature and the, the Indian traditional medicine uh, has relied a lot on plants, plant foods, and these sort of things. And I'm quite sure that when Hippocrates said, uh, let uh, food be your medicine and medicine be your food, it wasn't referring to beefsteak. <laughs> so um, I, think we, I think this has been a long tradition um, of, of useful food. So I do think the legumes, I think, are very, very important. I think whole grain cereals and their proteins are important. I think many of the, of the, legu of the, of the, of the grains that we get now from Latin America um, are very useful too, and these are new, and people who have some gluten sensitivity can eat these without any concerns at all. So I think I don't think things have to contain gluten, although to be honest, for 95% of our population, they're extremely good foods. Mm -hmm. So it is only a more limited group, a 1% perhaps with celiac and 
5% with uh, gluten intolerance who may have some particular concern. Celiac, yes, gluten intolerance to some extent. So I, I think that um, whole grain cereals are good. I think that fruit and vegetables are excellent. Uh, in general, the non-starchy ones are excellent. And then starchy ones such as sweet potatoes, yams, these sort of things. We don't eat these sorts of foods, but we should do. And there are other vegetables too, uh, vegetables which have a lot of sticky fibers in them, things like okra, um, eggplant. These are very good foods. People, people don't even know about them. Um, so you talk about those, have you eaten okra? No, what's okra? So, I mean, these are all, these, there's so many foods in this category which are healthy, and most of them are, most of them are. If one takes these foods in a less processed form, when I say less, I mean, obviously, tofu is a processed food. Bread is a processed, whole wheat bread is a processed food. Um, I, I think that the processing of tofu was a discovery, if you like, and I think a useful one. The, the use of seitan is a very useful way of preparing wheat gluten uh, for those who can take it, which is the majority of us. So I think these foods are good. Um, in fact, it would be a good thing for you to mention a fruit, vegetable, whole grain, cereal, legume, that I could say, oh yes, that's not a good one. Mm. So I would have to again go through a whole encyclopedia of these things if I was to tell you what I think should be included in the diet. Mm. But I do think, and, I, and I, this is quite important, um, if we look at our ancestors, um, well, my ancestors, the, the great apes, um, um, our, our common ancestor, if you look at the other members of, the, of, of our, our, our clade, as it were, um, the gorillas, the chimpanzees, the orangutans, um, these, these are all high fiber eaters. Um, they're high fiber eaters and they have a large variety of different foods they eat. The leaves, the stems and the shoots come from a wide variety of plants. We're the ones with a very restricted diet, largely um, beef and, and uh, wheat. If you think of most of the foods, no, not you, but most of the foods that people around you are eating, they're variants of those things, whether it's a steak, it's a burger, whether it's dogs, whether it's whatever it is, Jim, and, and whether it's a bun, whether it's a, whether it's a pizza, whatever it is, it's wheat. Mm. And um, then we've got our cheese and our milk, which also comes from our cattle. So we basically, we are dependent on cattle and wheat. Oh, yes. um, and I think that's really a very limited diet mm -hmm. when you think of the wide range of diet that we would have evolved on. How long have you been eating a plant-based diet? Like, How long have you been eating the plant-based diet? And what was your realization that you need a transition? Or did you always eat a plant-based diet? I changed to a vegetarian diet when I was 11. Um, and that was because I was presented with some pets that were mine as Christmas food. Oh. And there were two small birds that were my pets. 
wasn't my parents who did it. It was a well-meaning aunt who'd been looking after these pets for me. But they appeared in a Christmas hamper one Christmas when I was 11. And as you can imagine, that was a downer. Mm. Um, and I, I got to thinking because I used to be, from the age of about six to 10, I was quite a hunter. Mm. Um, and when we killed animals or didn't kill them, we wounded animals, we brought them home and tried to nurse them back to good health. So had I had more brains at the time, I would have thought even at that time, well, that's a silly thing to do. Why bother? Uh, why not just let them be healthy to start with? So, but anyway, all those things came to bear when I was about 11 at Christmas. And that was when I decided that this was not a good idea and I should uh, stop eating animals. Uh, and so at that point, I stopped eating animals. To my mother's day, my father wanted me a doctor. It was not a good idea, and that I would fall apart. I wouldn't grow properly. Um, anyway, so fast forward to the age of about 59. And, I, and I'd, already, I'd been eating more plant-based, more plant-based, more. I then thought at about 59, I really should make a change. Um, I should get rid of leather shoes. I should get rid of uh, woolen clothing. Um, and I should stop eating honey and these sorts of things. And leave myself independent of the world as the best one can. And so that, that, that's, that's been for a while. We went in that direction. My two daughters um, were brought up by us as vegetarians. Um, they, they obviously were allowed, they, they could buy what they want, they could eat what they want, but they, 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 they felt that was a good idea, I think, as soon as they were in that mode. And then um, they were much brighter than I am, because by the time they were sort of 26, 27, they decided to go vegan. So they were, they were probably sort of Thirty years quicker than I was in getting to the idea, so I have to I have to give them credit for that. And then my wife, who'd been a vegetarian um, after she met me, and the time that I changed, when the girls changed, she decided that was time for her too. So, wow. I, without any particular proselytization, we've got a family who are vegan. Um, that's how it is. So it started when it so it started when you were eleven. We had a little cut out there from it. So it started when you were eleven when your your aunt good good meaning killed two aunt, two of your pet birds and presented them for dinner <laughs> for Christmas. And then you said um your mother and your dad were quite My mother was, was very worried. My dad said, Don't worry. 
Mm, but my dad was a, uh, my dad was a physician, so he said, "Don't worry," to my mum as long as he eats gotcha. a good diet. My mum was not sure. Mm. So, what year was that then that you decided to go vegetarian? Wow! So I would be that would be probably about nineteen fifty three, fifty four. Wow! So there. Did the, veg, the word vegetarian even exist at that point? Oh, yeah. George Bernard Shaw had been a vegetarian. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, and um, interestingly, um, the, Milton had been a vegetarian way back in the 1600s. There was a big tradition in, I have to say, in Britain of being vegetarian. And I think it had probably come from the fact that the British had been in India for such a long while. And so this was not an unusual thing for them. So they were the one Western culture because they'd been in a, they strongly um, had an integration with a culture which was vegetarian, um, meant that a lot of these ideas were not new. Wow. So now you have two daughters. Do they have families? Are are they also? They they, 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 they have boyfriends, but um, uh, who tend to tend to be at least more plant based. <laughs> more plant. So no grandchildren. No. Okay. We're trying not to overload the planet. I I understand. I understand. So now are any of them physicians? Did they carry on the, the generational tradition? No, I think they, they, they realized that this has not been a tremendous success. So one studied environmental science and the other psychology. Okay. Both of which are very important if one's going to transition to a more plant-based diet. A 100%. I have one in medicine. She's in medical school now. So yeah, it's, there you are. Yeah, it's absolutely. Um, what sort of diet does she follow? All three of my children are vegan, and my husband. Super. Yeah. You're, you're, you, you arrived perfect. <laughs> we arrived. Well, it took us a little bit. It's been about eight years, so it, it took us some time. <laughs> but as far as – I would like to just kind of go back to – the glycemic index. So of course this was, you know, looking at foods and carbohydrates and the response of blood sugar in in the the blood for those who don't understand what that is. Is there any research on foods that cause a rise of insulin? Like cuz my understanding is that, you know, fats can cause, you know, a rise in insulin or is there any type of research like that showing that maybe meat or dairy cause an elevated rise of insulin and therefore make you have... Well, yeah, I think if you, if you have proteins, proteins generally increase insulin secretion. Mm. Um, they also increase glucagon secretion, but they secrete, so you get an increase in insulin secretion. And so there's been some concern that um, is it just the protein component of the foods that is responsible through insulin secretion, through increased insulin secretion for uh, the the apparent beneficial effects that we see. And I think uh, one can say probably not, but it's rather that um, plant proteins along with starch tend to slow the digestion rate of starchy foods. And so you have a more slow release 
carbohydrate in your gastrointestinal tract, giving you a flatter rise in blood glucose rather than a, a steep rise. As far as the portfolio diet, what was the what uh, on your portfolio diet? What was the um, impetus to name it portfolio, and what does it consist of exactly? Well, for a long time, I was working on different things like dietary fiber, um, things like plant sterols, things like nuts, um, and um, things like viscous fiber. Um, and my wife said, why don't you just put them all together? I mean, why look at them independently? Why put them together? You might get something more impressive. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, that's, of course, that's obvious, that's sensible. So um, we did, and we thought, well, how do we sell this? Because you're always meant to have one thing. You show that nuts do good things to blood glucose. You show that fibers do good things to, 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 to serum cholesterol. You find that plant sterols also lower serum cholesterol. So you've got viscous fibers lowering cholesterol, plant sterols lowering cholesterol, um, nuts lowering cholesterol. Um, so well, they all lower cholesterol, but they all do it by somewhat different means. So why don't we... Um, why don't we just call it a, a portfolio, like the financial portfolio, trying to fill in the things that are good so that you you balance off your perhaps not losses of doing something else with something that may not work quite as well for someone. So you have a portfolio. You build up your own portfolio of foods that you like that will then give you a, a big effect in terms of what the end, the end goal is, which is to lower serum cholesterol. So that's really what we did. I mean, uh, we, we just looked at things like vegetable proteins, soy, viscous fibers, as I say, oats, barley, psyllium type cereals, uh, nuts, plant cereal, margarines, um, enriched margarines. You put all those things together, then you do, you can get a statin like effect if people eat just what they're meant to eat. Yeah. Obviously, if you tell them to go and shop at the supermarket and buy these things, because you can get all these things at the supermarket, they will probably get about 40 to 50% of the effect, which is still good, because you, if you are getting a, a 30% or a 28% reduction in LDL cholesterol, just getting a, a 14 to 15% reduction in LDL cholesterol, many people all they need. So we feel that it will... And if if they're on drugs, um, it will stop them having to increase the the drug dosage, at which dosage you may see some side effects, whereas at a lower dosage you may not. So again, it may have use uh, for those who are already on medications and those who are threatened with medications. Absolutely. So that's kind of... Yeah, those who just want to eat a, a regular diet, why not? Yes, absolutely. So you're seeing that marriage of medicine and the diet, and then you get even a, a, a better effect, a more amplified effect. 
yes. of the dietary cholesterol lowering effects. Wonderful. So you mentioned viscous fiber. For those who are not familiar, can you talk to us a little bit about the different types of fiber? Barley and psyllium. If you've if you've ever if you ever eaten oatmeal or ever cooked oatmeal, you note that it gets sticky. If you've ever eaten foods like okra, vegetables like okra, when you, if you boil it, you notice that there's a certain sticking. And you even get that with eggplant. If you if you boil it, you get something sticky at the bottom. Um, and the bile acid and then wash them into the colon. And that's the way that you lose cholesterol from the body. Could you, repeat the body that? Then, Could you repeat that? I'm sorry, there was a little cutout in our connection. You said something about the sticky stickiness in the eggplant and then what happens? I'm sorry. If you have sticky fibers in foods, what they do is they reduce the absorption of bile acids from the intestine, especially the lower part of the small intestine, and the terminal ileum, where you normally absorb your bile acids. Bile acids then wash they're not to any great extent reabsorbed. If that's the case, then the body has to make bile acids because you need that to emulsify fats and things in your small intestine. So it draws on the cholesterol, especially the cholesterol in your circulation. It draws on that cholesterol as the skeleton for making the bile acids. So then you'll lower your cholesterol levels. And you wash out the bile acids in the feces into the pot. Um, so that way, cholesterol is lost from the body. Excellent. So, and then are the additional, what other types of effects are, you said there were multiple mechanisms of lowering cholesterol. So the viscous fiber is one. Fiber mechanism. Then the plants, yeah. the, the plant sterols, um, what they do is they block cholesterol absorption, not bile acids, but cholesterol. And so they take cholesterol itself out of the body. And your bile, you secrete quite a lot of cholesterol from your bile, which may be reabsorbed. It's not if you have these agents that block cholesterol absorption, known as the plant sterols. And you find them in oils and leafy vegetables normally but you can concentrate them up and then feed them in a margarine or some, some other food form. And you can get Sorry, you just cut out again. What was that last part that you said? You wash out bile acids. You wash out cholesterol itself. So With nuts, you can do all of the above. Okay. 
It says low system resources may affect your audio quality. Try closing some applications to improve performance. I think we're okay. We're closing in on, I know you have a certain amount of time left. So yeah. you said also, so nuts, is there any particular nuts in particular that work better than others? It's interesting. I think nuts in general seem to work. Mm. Uh, the work, the work, the nuts have been most studied are basically almonds, walnuts, and perhaps to some extent pistachios. Okay. Excellent. So walnuts, almonds, pistachios, dark green leafies, plant sterols, our viscous fiber. All of that would lead to healthier um, outcomes, hopefully decreased risk of cardiac events. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Um, and as far as the last little few minutes we have here, is there any advice that you would like to share with the audience if maybe they're considering a plant-based diet? Do you have any suggestions or thoughts or last words you'd like to share? Well, I think there, there are quite a lot of, books that are now being written um, and that, that those are very good. Let's look for books that are written on plant-based art so they get some feel for it. I think that um, look at what? I'm sorry? Plant-based restaurants. Oh, restaurants. I gotcha. Because yeah. You can eat out and the eating out may be very valuable in giving ideas. People get a lot of ideas, especially if they go to different cultures. So Chinese uh, vegetarian restaurants, see what the Chinese do, do with tofu, see what they do with seitan. Mm -hmm. That'll give you a lot of ideas if you need them. I think that's important to actually learn what you're doing and actually taste what you're doing. You can read about it and people can talk to you about it. But when you taste it, you understand whether it's the sort of thing that you're going to like. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important. Um, I don't know whether you can ask um, the restaurant's chef to give you some ideas on how to cook it, but I, at least you'll get lots of ideas on the sort of foods that can be produced. I think that's important. Mm -hmm. And then I think there are other resources, I think, Neil Barnard's group, the physicians for responsible medicine, will have lots of ideas and probably even be able to direct people to physicians in a particular geographic area who may be useful to monitor people while they're on these diets. Mm -hmm. I would suggest that a talk to or some, some talk with a dietitian who knows about these diets is very useful, very helpful. Mm -hmm. And I think to have some blood measures monitored by a physician who's interested in this sort of medicine would also be very helpful. Mm -hmm. If you're going entirely plant-based, you then need to be careful of B12. So it's worth having a B12 measurement before and then after about six months or a year on the diet, and then have annual measurements just to see that your B12 is right. And that's the only thing on a balanced plant-based diet that you're likely to be lacking. That's mm -hmm. a concern. Right. Absolutely. So I'm a, 
always encourage people to take the B12. It's a very simple, you know, eat. I tell people eat optimally and then supplement wisely. And that usually. Yes. And, and I think that the B12 is produced by bacteria. So it's perfectly acceptable for vegans mm -hmm. to have a supplement of B12. Probably we never needed B12 in the past because we never washed our food. And the dirt contains a lot of B12. The topsoil of the earth contains a lot of B12. Our feces are laden with B12. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And the water, I'm assuming, would have the bacteria that would have the B12 as well? Yeah. Absolutely. So, well, Dr. Jenkins, thank you so much. Um, uh, we said 45 minutes and we're at that here already. And I do appreciate your time. And it was a delight speaking to you today. Well, thank you. And I hope it's of some use. I don't know what you're going to do with all this. <laughs> I'm going to share it with the world, sir, and let them uh, enjoy it and learn from your wisdom. <laughs> you probably have to we we'll probably have to cut it down to two or three minutes, otherwise no. <laughs> I'm pretty sure many people will watch and listen. I think you'll be surprised. <laughs> but you've got it, and you've got a whole load of other people who've already done this too. Yes, I've. Uh, you're my goodness. You'll be around 175 interviews that I've done so far. <laughs> Good heavens. <laughs> I do enjoy speaking to people and just learning from their experience. So this has been a very. I say, uh, I, if I'm if I'm your 175th, I think that um, they'll never get round to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, those are already published. So you're you'll be in the next queue in the next week or so. <laughs> Do you get many hits to this thing? Do you get? Yeah, absolutely. We we do. We get thousands of downloads. Really. Yes, absolutely. Well, congratulations. I thought I thought you were going to try and put together a journal that was going to be. Well, we already have the medical journal that's already published. And so we're on our, it'll be our third edition in February. And Dr. Williams is our uh, editor-in-chief. Isn't that good? I, do, you, do you do it monthly? We do it, court, well, we were working quarterly. on twice a year. We're working towards quarterly is our goal. So we're hoping right. next year will be three and then um, moving to quarterly thereafter. But the International Journal of Disease Reversal and Prevention, which, which we've contacted you about before. So. I know, I know. That's, Thank that's you. <laughs> well, well done. Thank you I so will much, go and do my sure. other work now, and you must do the same too. Absolutely. Got, got, I do have work to do, but you have a beautiful day, sir. Same to you. All right. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.